What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. And yo, what is good, y'all? I have another dope guest for y'all this week. I wanted to remind y'all of some ways that you can continue to support the show besides, you know, listening. So number one, like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Follow us on all socials. You can find us at RTWD Podcast. Send your boy a DM. Send me your thoughts on your favorite episodes, some constructive feedback, what you thought of the guests, um, all those things. And then finally, joining the Real Fan Patreon page. Um, really love growing that community. And um, yeah, some really dope stuff happening there. All right. Now on to the guest. This week, I am joined by Brandon Lee. Brandon is a community conscious policing strategist, author, and co-founder of Training for Transformation, LLC, a community-led organization best known for its unprecedented work in police community integrated training and education. Now in the past, y'all, I know we have talked on the show about police violence and um, brutality with some opinions that I had and theorized on some solutions, but I'm really, really excited uh, that I had the opportunity to talk to Brandon and have him on the show to provide some deeper knowledge and firsthand experience on some community-based solutions for unnecessary police violence. We talked about Brandon's book because I said he's an author, <laughs> Community Conscious Policing, a guide for people's justice and law enforcement solutions, where he shares case studies of true encounters with police and diverse communities, his 33 recommendations to help find a accountability, heal the trauma of police brutality, strategize solutions for your community's future, and much more. I will have the link to purchase that book in the show notes, but without further ado, here is Brandon. Yo, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Peace and blessings. Thank you for having me. It's my yes. honor. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I'm really excited. I had a chance to um, dive into your book. I haven't a chance to uh, finish it. Last week was crazier than I thought it was going to be. But everything I've read so far has been, you know, I was telling you before I hit that record button, my, my jaw dropped on some of the instances that you've been through. Um, I was clapping and, and applauding you and, and cheering you on at, at some of the advocacy work that you did and the change that you're making um, in the past communities that you've been in around the country. Um, yeah, like you're doing some great work. Great, great work, man. For real. Thank you. Thank you. That, that makes a great deal. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, I, one thing I always do when I have a, a guest on the show is like I read their in, their bio, their intro uh, that I get. But I always love for folks to just like, you know, share a little bit about themselves. So go ahead and share with the, the real fam, like who who Brandon Lee is. You know, I have to begin uh, in Oakland. Uh, I was born, raised in Oakland, California. Uh, I had a loving father, mother. I'm the only child. All right. Uh, was there. Till I was 16, you know, have you, um, I'm sure you heard of a show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, yep. Well, I'm still waiting on my check in the mail because I'm telling you, that's my story. Yeah. Uh, I, I was in Oakland, you know, this is the 80s, 90s, so you know, the crack era, there's mm. a lot going on, HIV and AIDS. It was just very drastic times. And um, I moved to Texas with my aunt, my uncle. Uh, two younger cousins, just like the show. All right. To the suburbs, to the woodlands. The only difference is, uh, actually, in Oakland, I went to a. Uh, I had the privilege to go to a, a top private prep school, and mm. that really put me on the trajectory of education of what I'm doing now. So, uh, Oakland in Texas is, is uh, where I'm from. Uh, majored in public policy, Spanish. Got my master's in teaching. Uh, but man, I'm just a brother from Oakland. 
All right, I feel that. I feel that. And I saw on um just doing some my because I do my Googles, uh, that you also are uh, multilingual. So you uh you speak Spanish as well. Spent some time um was I'm it Spain? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was a Spanish major, and uh, I'll give you a quick a quick tidbit about that. I was uh, in eighth grade, and I was a I was a really good student, um, mm. but Spanish was the class that I was cutting up in with my friends. Okay. And, um, <laughs> you know, my mom, she has a, as a, you know, I guess a twisted humor for my punishment. Uh, I went to see the teacher every day uh, as a Spanish tutor in eighth grade. Mm. And uh, uh, that experience, you know, it's kind of what broadened my horizons. And then I got to study abroad at 15 in Spain, Southern Spain. Uh, studied abroad in Mexico, uh, wow. the University of Havana, Cuba. So that definitely like shaped my reality. Uh, you know, definitely. That's that's really cool. That 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 stuck out to me because I'm like, I mean, brother been overseas, all that stuff. So that's been, <laughs> that's really cool. Um, well, I wanna I wanna get to your book a, a little bit, but like I first of all, because like you have case studies that are just about your story you really like bring yourself into this and really like outline it in a way um where you're just telling an instance and like to me i'm always curious about when people talk about like trauma in their past or like things that have happened to them like what is the process how how did you go about like you know reading this book and what made you think that it was an important time right now to write this book man there's so many uh i got goosebumps when you asked that question Hmm. There's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, this book manifested. I'll say it that way. Uh, you know, my job in this in a book like this is to is to kind of obey the calling that you feel hmm. and not get in the way of it. Yeah. Um, you know, my a few years ago, when I first started the journey of this book, I just had twin daughters. Hmm. And I was watching videos going from black men getting murdered and lynched, you know, on TV, like many of us. Yep. When we were coming up in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, built on the shoulders of organizations like the original Black Panther Party of Self-Defense and, and others yep. who kind of paved the way uh, for the style of work that we're doing. So we already had a do for self mentality. We understood, you know, it was kind of instilled in us that, you know, power to the people. Um, and these were slogans, things that you may hear, but in the com community and the culture, it, it is being instilled and embedded as far as your value system. Mm -hmm. So we were forced to survive and make it through those times. Um, a lot of us didn't, though. Mm. So when I started seeing black women like Sandra Bland, yep. you know, near PV, Prairie View, a &M University, shout out to HBCUs. That's where my grandfather went to college. Mm. Uh, you know, I attended Baylor University and my family's still in Houston. I used to travel at Highway 6 all the time. Yeah. But I also understood that I had a certain level of privilege also. And it's very possible that the privilege that I did have access to because of those who came before me and paid those dues could be the reason why I'm alive and others didn't survive. So when I started seeing, you know, young black women, young black girls getting body slammed by police and like women and, yeah. and you know, uh, black women of trans experience and people, native women, people who, you know, 
now, you know, in my, I just come from a culture and yeah. it was just violating certain conscious boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at my daughters, I'm a stay at home dad at the time, taking care of them. And, uh, you know, it was just something that, uh, so I'll, I'll end it with this. When I started seeing all this on the screens, as far as the Ferguson's and, and Freddie Gray's and all the different things that we've been exposed to, uh, I told my, my wife and my, who's also my business partner, and really where I learned this trauma healing approach from, mm. uh, I said, okay, I know what time it is. I'm from Oakland. You know, it's hunting season mm-hmm. and, and we the flavor of the month. Yeah, I, I know I know the cycles of violence. So it's time for me to go ahead and look up. I got a family. Yeah, you know, I live in a state where it's, it's uh, you know, gun laws are, are, you know, favorable for people who feel the need to protect themselves. Yeah. And then my wife had to remind me and say, but, you know, I'm a peace builder. Mm. Mm. We, we we're we're peace builders. Yeah, like we're trying for transformation. We don't. That's not how we respond. And so, uh, education is my mechanism and tool. And kind of that's where the the impetus of the book began. No, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm just even thinking about like, yeah, my journey, my journey too. And and <laughs> I just I just remember like a couple of years ago, like my pops. I mean, I have a, a ton of family who are in the military, and my pops is. My step pops is in the military and stuff like that. And he just called me up. He's like, these these folks are losing their minds. So you need to go ahead and look up a, look up a gun training program. I'm a, I'll pay for it. Go ahead and, and do it. And um, and I'm I, I mean I'm in California, so it's like the the laws are, are are different and much more strict. But you know, just like heavily thought about that. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm still like in or in Orange County at the time where I was living. Um, honestly, it was like. I, I just never like, especially like, you know, 2016, 45 rolled his head around. Like, that's where I just not feel safe anymore. You know what I'm saying? And a part, a part of my, like, my story is like, there are the parts of my story where I grew up in the hood. Like I've gotten jumped before all that stuff. But it's like, when I, like, I, I was, I felt more comfortable in those areas than I did in like Orange County. I thought literally like at any moment, somebody would just like, uh, take it upon themselves of like seeing me wearing like a hoodie or anything like that and just like do it do what they felt was necessary to protect theirs when all I'm doing is walking down the street with my wife you know what I'm saying and so um but like then again like being reminded of that like trauma or, or that trauma informed care that education piece you know what I'm saying and and really getting into spaces um <laughs> where they don't like smart <laughs> smart brothers like <laughs> um and really like uh advocating for like um systemic change right and so um, that's another reason why I loved like parts of your book, because like you really like, I mean, the level like the I just was thinking of like I'm reading like, you know, five to 10 pages. Right. Of like you going to court, deposition, testifying, writing, emailing, all these different things. But like that's probably condensed of like months of work and like weeks of work, <laughs> hours and hours and hours of stuff you have to keep keep calling. You know what I'm saying? So um, it, it's just wild to me. It's wild to me. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't I, know. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted readers. Uh, number one, our book is centered and focused for people who have historically been most impacted mm-hmm. by law enforcement violence. Yeah, white supremacy culture, racism. It's not for everybody. Yeah, you know, as you're saying, you know, it's real talk. And everybody's not prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had to. So I'll speak directly um, about the book. There are those of us 
And when I say us, I'm being inclusive of anyone. Um, and I'm pressing pause because I want to choose my words. Properly. No, it's all good. It's all good. You, we almost have to be superheroes nowadays. Mm. I mean, if you just look at the book and the case studies I offered, that was just in the past few years. Like yeah. that wasn't, I had a couple from childhood, but a lot of that stuff like happened while I was writing the book. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So people think as I do this work, like I, I no longer, I stopped getting profiled and I stopped having to, you know, uh, uh, protect my family. And I, I, you know, that, that I don't see, my walk doesn't see. So I'm bringing all this up to say that. I want the readers to under, like get a clear glimpse of what it means to be a black man today in mm. America. Yeah. What it means to be somebody who is not um, uh, have the traditional way of life. Mm. You know what I mean? Or the traditional approach. And, you know, we're out here catching hell. And yeah. at some point uh, we have to build on the, uh, on the shoulders of those that we come from um, and preserve life. And that life begins with us. I'm going to end with that note. The culture that you described walking around Orange County is what we wanted to be clear that from an indigenous perspective, words can manifest in a body just like a bullet, mm. but we don't spend time to pay attention. We don't stick around to see the outcome. Mm. So my father died at 37, a hypertension and kidney failure. His uncle, my uncle, his brother died at 40, mm. hypertension and kidney failure. My granddad, who I never met, 53, died of hypertension and kidney failure. So, you know, uh, we, we, our uh, motto is real life, real talk will change because at some point what people call microaggressions or, you know, once you just comply or you chipping away at my lifespan, you chipping away at my mortality rate, you taking energy away from my children. Mm. So that begins to shape now, you know, my response and how do we prioritize our own life preservation. And that doesn't mean I have to take away from something else. Quite the contrary, we're builders by nature. Mm. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to, to um, bring light and focus that, um, you know, those are real life situations that many of us have to endure and it doesn't go away when a new president comes in office. Absolutely. And gosh, all right. So there's so many uh, different areas. There's a couple areas are ways I want to, I want to travel, but I just, I'm just going to like chase it with you because I feel like, you know, I felt I felt it coming, your spirit coming out. Uh, so, uh, so, um, so, one of the things as I was reading your book, and I really want to give it opportunity to like actually outline it uh, pretty well because I I feel like I'm I've just wanted to talk. To, I it's very few times you get to just talk to the author of the book, so I'm just like excited to do this. But there's been there's been uh, in your book like, and you just said it like these are things that have happened within the past few years. And like, as you described, like I read your bio, you talked about like some of the opportunities you had, like, you know, there was level, high levels of privilege that you were, you had, you know what I'm saying? And like, even myself living in Orange County, you know, me and my wife both have multiple degrees, you know what I'm saying? And, and like, like there's a level of privilege that I know that I have and yet and still, you know what I'm saying? Yet and still, like there, like you said, like we have to be like superhuman, but like these things happen and chip away at like who we are, you know what I'm saying? And I even... I I, uh, I noticed a tr an actual like transformation in like seriously in my soul when we finally moved out of Orange County. You know what I'm saying? Like I like uh, like it, it's a there's like a it's a palpable. I always tell people this: there's palpable racism that exists within Orange County that like just you as a person of color walking around can feel. And I don't, 
and I feel like people kind of like be like, oh, stop complaining, like let it go, like get over it. But like you don't like there's like not you don't recognize like and you hit on hit the nail on right on the head. It's like you don't recognize how those subtle things chip away at who you are at like until it finally gets gets your physical physical parts of who you are. So I, I really appreciate you pointing that out. Really appreciate you pointing that out a whole lot. Um, but okay, let me get to the questions. I, I haven't even touched on the questions I sent you. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I would love for you to share more about your philosophy on training because I know, you know, a lot of times uh, those who advocate for like you know police budgets are are, are different things like that. They always say. Um, yo, like we could just, you know, do more training, just do better training and everything like that. But you, you touch on something specific in the book and I would love for you to share about your philosophy on training, um, and how, uh, T4T does it differently. Sure. You know, I have to give honor and praise to, uh, uh, it was an attorney. Um, his last name is Carr. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I've never, we've never met, so I I don't know if we to put him on blast, but. Attorney Carr. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vermont law. He was a student at the time. And mm-hmm. he was at a conference and he submitted a proposal. The title was Police Community Integrated Training and Education. Again, mm-hmm. that's Police Community Integrated Training and Education. And he took time to basically lay out what a police training kind of should look like under this banner, which is abbreviated as PSITE. Uh, if you bring police and community together, what would that training look like? And he took time and found where the budget should come from and and aligned it with the police academy uh, that was in that local area and said, this is how it should work. But he highlighted training for transformation. He highlighted our work uh, Mm -hmm. way across the country and said, this is an example of what police community integrated training and education would look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when he highlighted us and put it, the context around it um, at the time, you know, I'm a new father, as I explained, Um, I'm in different, you know, state, boards and committees and just being an, an active, I'm a public policy major. So I'm, I'm just active in my local government surroundings, you know, exercising my family's voice. <laughs> and uh, as you know, we're trying to do where I'm from. And so I find myself in this area that is police leadership, captains and all these police people at the time, I don't know what a captain or a sergeant, you know, the difference. Yeah. Got yeah. Politicians in the room, academic researchers, and they're all talking about developing policies and training related to how I'm going to be policed in my area. Mm. And so it just hit me. I'm sitting, I'm sitting in and I'm listening to these different meetings and this, this phrase just started like somebody was just hitting me over the head with, and it was like police. Okay. I am not law enforcement. I am not military. I am Mm. not a first responder. So anybody who does that role, much respect, you know. A lot of yeah. others in my family are military. Much respect to you. Yeah, uh, they can have that. But community integrated training and education. Ain't nobody in this room who can do that better than me and my team. Yeah, love and that. That's where it began, and so I have to give credit to uh, Rashida Grenage, director of the Coalition of Police Accountability in Oakland. Uh, I consider her to be uh, a mentor, whether she knows it or not. I've learned a lot from uh, she and uh, her family, unfortunately, were impacted by law enforcement violence. Mm. Um, But in the conversation, you know, she was saying how, well, training is vital because if community embeds what we want to see in the training and then we back that with the policy, 
Well, then now people like us can go and hold those officers accountable, especially if we have things like community oversight of law enforcement boards and the proper legislations in place to make sure that we have teeth. Um, so that's where I began to see how training needed to be not just uh, updated, mm. it needed to be scrapped. Mm. And in the book, I talk about how we gained access, uh, you know, legally, lawfully gained access to police training in our state, how we critiqued it through a diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice lens. Mm. Uh, and instead of like trying to improve that, we just went and built our own model, yeah. uh, community conscious policing, and uh, kind of disrupted disrupted the uh, the market. When we, I'll, I'll end by saying this: when we started a few years ago, it was frowned upon, at least in my area, for a community to be a part of like curriculum design, mm. you know, delivering training without a police counterpart. We yeah. had to like break down some barriers, but I think you'll find that more and more uh, uh, cities. Um, and municipalities are shifting to have to include community and more uh, of the of the uh, training experience. Absolutely, and I, and I love that. It's like you know, what I'm saying, I, and you say it in your book, and uh, I'm I, I wish I had it like pulled up because like there's a specific quote like where you basically call out how current models of uh, of police training goes, and it it just doesn't work because like how can the perpetrator uh, create a training to fix the, the wrongdoing that they're doing. You can't. So like, I love that you say like, we scrapped it, fixed it. They can't do it better than me <laughs> and like, and created a model that, that, that works, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and to get shouted out of like the work that you're doing, it's like, that's dope. And, and you were, you were, um, you know, some of the work that you've done has really influenced and impacted, um, some, some legislative changes on, on some, some areas. Is that right? Like, was that for the state of California? Or was that the county of Berkeley? I can't remember which one it was. Yes. Um, you know, my wife and business partner was, uh, she was a labor union organizer with SEIU, like the largest mm. labor union organizing, or at least one of the largest. Um, she was field director with the American Civil Liberties Union. You know, so mm. in terms of, we've always had a role of civic duty and played yeah. a role in whatever local politics or state legislation is impacting our experiences. But there were a couple that we definitely played a key role in Oregon. There was um, there was a racial profiling bill in 2015 that passed. Um, I, as um, a resident, was not pleased with. Um, uh, they just needed some help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> needed some help, and I invited myself to help, and uh, it was received. And so that yeah. uh, that law, uh, we found through doing those studies that. Uh, there were like permanent residents or, you know, immigrants, refugees, folks who were here who mm. were getting like, you know, a drug offense, felony, deported. So we needed to declassify those drugs. First, it was from a felony to a misdemeanor to prevent deportation or, uh, you know, excessive deportation until finally, I think Oregon is the first to not uh, uh, to uh, decriminalize drugs altogether. And mm. really it was from a racial profiling perspective of, well, if this is where a lot of the racial profiling is taking place, well, then we kind of uh, kind of lose that privilege to police that. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that was some local le some legislation that passed uh, statewide. I think Oregon was the first. Um, and there's quite a few others. I mean, if you look in um, some police accountability legislation, just while we're on the topic, uh, yeah. I was not foot feet on the ground. This is kind of like descendants after the work that we that I personally put in. But I still remain connected. It's Measure LL. 
in uh, Oakland that actually changed the city charter. So th those mm. are like mechanisms and things that you can tidbits out of the book that you can see the wording and see an example, a precedent, yeah. you know, that you can apply in your local area and see like, oh, that's how I can go from just having something on paper to actually having some teeth or how I need to maneuver to uh, bring some accountability in, in your in your uh, neck of the woods. Absolutely. And I love how you like really break it down in your book to kind of like give people some act. Not only are you telling stories, but like you're giving like this is how I did it. You can do it too. Um, obviously, that stuff takes a lot of time. It takes uh, mobilization. Um, both you and your wife have like that kind of like mobilization and and uh, public policy like kind of background. But like it is doable. You just have to apply the pressure. And as, as we've seen in like recent months, uh, this has nothing to do with like police uh, police accountability. But like applying pressure to the Biden administration for pausing those daggone student loans. You know what I'm saying? Like. That like the, a pressure pressure does work, and like that there is no way that like I think I think we have been fooled to believing that you know um, there is so many like stark differences and divide between all of us, and regardless of race, class, gender, all these different things. But when we bound together on one common cause, and police accountability should be a common cause um, uh, that we can evoke change in our communities. And so I, I really love how like you you come come at it like there's a part in your book where you talk about um i think there's like this restorative justice model where you're you're really wanting to face um the perpetrator with the with the um those who had that offense taken against them and really like putting them in a room having a conversation figuring it out all right like let's continue the work forward and so like if we can find ways to do that as a community come together and hold the police accountable like we really can evoke change and so i i really appreciate it uh, that part, those parts in your books and, and just really the model um, that you set out and laid out for us all uh, to like really follow in the book. Was that, per was that purposeful um, for the book? Yeah. You know, you really touched on, um, you know, it's community conscious policing. And I think you're, you're really uplifting the consciousness, the conscious element. And it's a reason why we um, began the story introducing um, kind of a new context, mm -hmm. a new, barometer to measure this this conversation um, a lot of times we're forced to have this conversation at least in my sphere um, in English mm. which is limited as a language teacher we're already limited mm -hmm. there um, linear thinking and processing you know uh, yep. which just comes with government processes but it's like almost counter or opposite to how community of communities of color and nature itself operates. Yeah. Um, so if we didn't have a barometer, you know, like a new barometer to measure success and progress. So that's why it was important that we began with what we found to be the oldest, the first kind of um, uh, code of human behavior mm. to reorient the conversation. So, you know, based out of Africa, we refer to it as Maritime, the beloved land, but, you know, it's widely known as Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking thousands of years ago, but there was an original divine code of human behavior that we as a people on the uh, globally adhered to, mm -hmm. at least spaces around the globe that we adhere to it. So a lot of times you can see uh, similar structures like the pyramids in Mesoamerica or, or uh, in Mexico and similarly. So there's a there's a connection embedded where all of us, and that's where the concept of interbeing, interconnectedness, interdependence, mm -hmm. these are like universal laws that we can't get away from. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, if you get into the research of, uh, we know, of course, historically, uh, who's been most impacted by law enforcement violence. But let me just deal with law enforcement for a minute. First, I want to make sure that I'm not uh, equating trauma related to the profession of law enforcement with being a descendant of mass, you know, genocide as far as our Native American brothers, sisters, and, and elders and ancestors, uh, slavery, et cetera. There's, I'm not comparing the two. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I saw a study and uh, showed that police officers, if you're a white man, a white man and a police officer, compared to just someone who identifies as a white male, and if they both make it to the age of 50, the white male who is a police, who is not a police officer, is expected to live until another 30, 35 years, mm. 80, 85. This is just based on the study. Yeah. The other uh, white male who is a police officer was expected to live another 7.8 years, 57, wow. 58. Yeah, wow. So when you start to look at the trauma related to the profession you know, the increased domestic violence, the increased suicides, the increased, you know, health issues, et cetera. That's why for me, it was so imperative that we had to have a conversation about trauma, mm -hmm. how trauma impacts the body. Mm -hmm. If I have an officer who's trauma, you know, filled with trauma, I'm going through my historic trauma. And then now we're meeting on the street and I don't have any influence on how this officer was trained. It's a wrap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a wrap. So that's uh, these are just some examples of where um, the the indigenous principles informed us. And I said it one day. You know, what if my mortality rate was connected to theirs? Mm. What if them living longer was connected to me living longer? Mm -hmm. See, now it starts to change the pandemic, the dynamics of the conversation to where peace has to has to prevail. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting too is that there's like such a well predominantly within like white spaces, but I'll generalize it over to like United States, where we are, uh, American context. It's like, it's so individualistic where like, there's not even a, this idea of my fate being tied to, you know, somebody 3000 miles away. Doesn't, it doesn't ring, it doesn't make sense to them. And so I've even been asked the question of like, you know, why, uh, why do you care about this, you know, black person that, that, that died, um, in New York, like you live in San Diego, you never met him. You, you're not connect, but like I see me in that person. You know what I'm saying? Like the, uh, it's almost like we've been desensitized to violence and death in America. That like even it, it doesn't even matter. That's another black person, but that's another human being that lost their life when they shouldn't have. But like if we, if, like you said, like connected, that we are connected, like that person should not have lost his life. And it hurts me to see the, the, the loss of life, you know, like it honestly, like, you know, I feel like I, I lost some time in myself, within myself by that loss of life. Like um, it. Yeah, that's that's such a that's a game changer. Like if we could approach this work in that way, um, and I'm talking about like, you know, police reform, uh, better, not better training, new training. Uh, in, in this way, it, like it transforms it completely. Um, what has been your experience as you, as you, you know, as you have like laid that, that model out uh, for, for the folks that you do these, this consulting work and in these trainings for? You know, first it's important that we um, kind of qualify who we engage with. Mm. So it was important in the beginning with T4T that we made two things vital as a part of our value system. And the first was uh, in the mission statement for T4T when I didn't have a dollar, I, mm -hmm. I didn't, wasn't making any money. 
but T for T is a self-sufficient organization. And what that meant was that we're not going to be steered one way by politics or money. That's mm. not our, that's not, I was on the track to be a president of a community college. Mm. Like, uh, you know, I got skills and talents. This is a, a mission and a passion and a, right, something different. So that was the first pillar. The second pillar pillar is, I'll give you an example. Harvard, in my humble opinion, Harvard isn't considered to be Harvard. And I'm using kind of classist terms. I want to recognize this. This may not be the best example, but it's widely known. So I'm trying to use it. Yeah. Harvard isn't Harvard because of who they let in as far as the talented people that go on to do wonderful, great things and contributions mm. to the world. I think Harvard is Harvard because of who they keep out. Mm. <laughs> you feel what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, I got you. I got so you. I'm using Harvard loosely because I don't know how they do their thing. But in order to be the best, considered to be the best, again, from a combative perspective or an indigenous lens, uh, something is sacred if it needs to be protected. Mm. So T for T is not, we're not ambulance chasers. We're not running out behind every shooting to involve ourselves in places that we're not invited. That's not what we do. We look mm. for those organizations who are uh, already considered to be the best in public safety. They've worked to earn whatever accreditations that require them to monitor their officers more than everyone else. They're already doing what they can do uh, with what's available in their community. They've established a track record of some level of safety or, mm-hmm. or community cultural response. So we engage with this level to support mm-hmm. them go from scenario-based training to actually direct experience because they have. Uh, we just kind of help them with the tipping point. So it's not that we can't do the other work. As you can tell in the book, we do have an accountability arm. And yeah. that's usually the vein that, of where organizations that are not ready for the, uh, for the rebuilding of a shared vision, right? They're mm-hmm. kind of stuck on like confronting their own biases. Well, then that's a uh, accountability conversation. Uh, rarely do the two mix, you know, mm-hmm. it's like an accountability track. Well, then that's where the focus is uh, and we'll drive the training of what's needed. Uh, but that's uh, the second thing that I was important to uplift is that we're very selective about who we partner with. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, that it's, it's, it's mutually beneficial. We don't, um, yeah, we're we're pretty. Our standards are very high when it comes to that. I I and I love that because that and so I I have real talk with Duma, but I I recently went on my own like entrepreneurial venture. I'm doing it full time. I started in last month or last last month. That's not true. Last year, um, but like I very like because I do diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. That that's not my main driver, but like that's embedded in the work that I do for organization organizational development, team development, and career and leadership coaching. And so like one of the things that I have made very clear is that I don't operate out of a mindset of scarcity. Um, I don't operate out of a mindset of like, there is not enough. There is plenty of people. There's a multitude of like organizations that exist that want and need my support. Um, But I will not like, like, I love that phrasing of like, I'm not going to ambulance chase. Like an organization that calls me in as their organizational psychologist if they call me in and they're like, we need you to come in nine times out of 10, it's like they, they, it's a sinking ship. <laughs> it's yeah. a sinking ship. Unfortunately, it's a sinking ship. Um, but the, but when, when there is like a mutually beneficial, like partnership um, where both are like supported, care for all the, all the things um, that that's when like the real flourishment like um, happens, which I, I have seen, I have a couple clients now that I, I'm like, I, I love talking to y'all because like you're ready to do the you're ready you're willing you're engaged you're ready to do the work so I I love that I love that um, 
because uh, oh gosh, the opposite is true. Oh man, I don't even want to. <laughs> either master or teacher will appear. It doesn't say that the master or teacher just sits around waiting and have no. Not about that. Um, so as we as we talked about this, I, I know that you've probably like worked with um, a variety of like different law enforcement um, or police departments. Uh, I'm curious, and even from your own experience, um, I have my own uh, beliefs about the role of policing and law enforcement in communities. But I'm curious about after you've written this book, gone through what you've gone through, all these different things, what do you believe about the role of policing um, or law enforcement within communities? You mean as far as like their existence or give me a little bit more? You Okay. Uh, so so this here's the hard part too is like, like I I feel like I could just ask the about like do you believe like uh, police should be abolished like that question but I don't even feel like that's a question that actually even like engages the actual conversation around like policing because like crimes still yeah. happen different things like that or other things um, I believe that there's another way about doing you know sure. law enforcement support care trauma informed care but I'm curious from your expertise sure. um, what do you believe those roles should sure. be or if you have even have even thought about like an outline or something like that yeah yeah no absolutely um you know when i think and look at the most effective models particularly growing up in a place social justice driven you know whether it's environment you name it you got to come through oakland you know you're going to have to come through oakland at some point mm-hmm. um as far as you know tracing the history in the path at some point somebody in oakland did it yeah so being in that culture right what we define now as trauma healing what we define now as a public health response model. These were things, so if you look at HIV and AIDS, San Francisco, the Bay Area, you know, you're talking about impacting communities of color. Like, that's not even talking about violence. That's not even talking about crack. Mm. That's not even talking about... So our response is what is defined as trauma-informed. Back then, if you got one of these diseases, you were for certain had a certain amount of time before you passed. Mm trauma-informed care came out of, at least in my opinion, someone who was, you know, there at my young age, but trying to be a part of the solution as best I could. Um, So the language that we're using now came out of real life, real talk, real change, right? And we were using things that were used prior to us, generations before. So a public health response model is what we chose to build community conscious policing. You know, that's kind of the... uh, the uh, banner. And what that means is that uh, law enforcement, well, number one, <laughs> we just have to acknowledge where we are in space and time. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm a public policy major. You know, I have a humble opinion. I'm not, I'm not looking for converts. I'm not Jesus. You don't yeah. believe me. It's good. No problem. <laughs> yeah. But if we have become a society of laws that have to be enforced, people are going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. If we're a society based on values, based on principles, well, then you cultivate the values and the principles, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how in indigenous communities, again, we look at where are the models where we didn't need jails, mm-hmm. where there wasn't world wars mm-hmm. and people were sustainable and thrive for hundreds, thousands of years. We have to go look at certain models like that and say, well, how can we use that integrate in what we do? So, you know, if there are different communities, so what that means is that we need to invest into the community infrastructure, mm-hmm so that we can contribute to the solutions that we want to see 
in our community. Yeah. So we did a health career development institute, and I'll make this brief. Health career, health career development institute, three partners, UC Berkeley, uh, locally, community-based nonprofits, service providers and clinics, and Highland Hospital that was treating, you know, the had the trauma unit that was seeing all the people being shot in Oakland. Yeah. And we grabbed, uh, you know, students that would be considered back then, they called them at risk. Now they're underserved, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the students who were on the borderline, we didn't want the A's and all the people that are probably going to make it. We wanted those borderline students and we brought them in. And so we educated them on not just the health career, you know, uh, the health system and what it does to us, mm -hmm. because in that they found health disparities of asthma. Mm. We didn't just talk about doctors and becoming a, a doctor or a lawyer. We talked about had all the positions of people who play roles in the community that worked to eliminate that disparity. Right. And, and the racism attached to it. Mm -hmm. And then, so they got to see the systems involved. Then they got to meet the people in their neighborhood that they knew as nephew, auntie, Annie and them. Yep, yep. But standing in a professional light, well, this is how we, right? This is how we treat ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so they were then able to take all that information, compile it together, and then put it in that linear form, in that language that the government speaks, and send that to City Hall and say, man, stop sending these trucks through our, through our neighborhoods to the port that's bringing us asthma and all these public mm -hmm. health circumstances. That show up because of racism. Yep. And they can articulate it and they can change and shift. Right. So now the trust gotta go somewhere else. And now yep. so it doesn't mean that they solved everything, but that's just like a case study mm -hmm. or an example of how if we invest in the community infrastructure, then it takes pressure off of law enforcement so that they can focus on real crime. Mm -hmm. And then the community can build and grow together. Yeah, uh, and evolve together. So that's kind of, uh, I guess, my response to how something like that would work in a public health response. No, I, I, I love that. And I, I feel like, you know, when we talk, when conversations around defunding the police, abolishing the police, um, any anything that is a po op in opposition and seemingly opposition to policing in general, people have like, well, crime is just going to run rampant. It's just like, it, it, it really, it really isn't because communities know how to take care of themselves if they're properly supported and provided that inv investment of infrastructure in them. Like, you know, um, I love that. I, I even think, I think back to the days when I, you know, when I was younger, I went to, went to church and whatnot of like, I know, like I knew exactly where, if I needed some support, somebody cared for me, get even a hot meal. I knew that the church was the place to go or something like that. If there was a, a level of support or something like that um, within these communities, like we know, we know where to get the resources because we know that it's not going to, that we know where we're not going to get it from. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, yeah, no, I love that. I love that outline. Um, I, and I even think I know for myself, like at this point, I, I mean, I was history, pol political science in undergrad. Like I still pay attention. You know, we, uh, the idea of completely and utterly getting rid of the police or abolishing the police as much as I would love to develop different models of like, you know, law enforcement within our communities, I know that that's just a very big um, mountain to climb. Um, uh, would you, do you think that it's even possible at, the, at this stage of like where we're at in our, in, in our historical moment? Is that, 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 that even a possibility to abolish the police or even come up with other ways of law enforcement? Great question. Um, so number one, I think it was Camden, New Jersey. I, I may be mistaken, but I think there's an example or two. I think I think you're right, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, an abolishment and a rebuilding 
Um, so we need to acknowledge that. So for me, it's not about um, like a blanket one fight, one size fits all. But generally speaking, I think this is again where, if you notice in the book, I always kind of come back to. For us, it's a Dogon perspective, a comedic perspective. I can't say I can't speak for the Dogon, but a comedic perspective or an indigenous perspective. And mm-hmm. so that's where I would have to uh, kind of uh, adhere to. And so from that lens. I come from a community of builders. I mean, you go back to the beginning of time, you know, whether it's the pyramids or, you know, I come from a community of builders. So the concept of abolishing or dismantling that language is not innate to me. Mm. That might've been something that I've learned or picked up, you know, or that's been instilled through what I've endured in terms of oppressive, experiencing oppressive systems. Mm. But as far as like who my being is and my spirit is, I'm a builder. Mm. So I will say that um, I wouldn't even take an approach. So, yes, are there times and spaces where there are organizations, not even just police, yeah, just organizations who do not serve their constituents? There's a time and a place where, let me, let me be specific. <laughs> If yes, be specific. Name names. I love it. <laughs> institutions, if we as people and if institutions are not in alignment with nature-based principles and universal laws that govern the planet we live on, mm-hmm. seen or unseen, you pick and choose, you know, take it how you want to, whatever you are part of will become obsolete, mm. period. Yeah. It's, you don't have to wait on people to tear it down. You, you will become, in the 21st century, the way the technology is and, and times are changing as fast as they are, yeah. try to keep doing what you've been doing, whatever it is, in whatever you're doing, and you won't be around long. Um, so I would say what I would offer, uh, and I can't, I'm one person, so I want to be conscious to always build up anybody who's working beside us in this work, right? Yeah. I'm not here to judge or to cast anything. But what I would say is I have seen where there's a focus on abolishment or dismantling and it takes time and attention and resources away from what are we building? Mm-hmm. And I think if you look in Oakland, it's, uh, it's not perfect. Of course, I've got a bias because I'm from there, yeah, but yeah. I've literally watched uh, uh, the community organize. I've watched, you know, whether it's attorneys like the ACLU of Northern California that stepped in to help me out. So just coalitions coming together across, you know, whatever surface differences for this issue of police accountability. Um, and when, when we're able to do that, when the opportunities arise, it's like, oh, we got a program for that. Mm-hmm. So let me, uh, I'll wrap this up really quickly just to bring it home for you. There's a case study offered in the book where we were successful in taking the $1.4 million budget from the Internal Affairs Department of Oakland. Mm-hmm with the support of city council and the mayor and redirecting those funds to fund the community oversight of law enforcement board. Back then it was called the um, uh, civilian oversight of police board, civilian oversight or civilian review board, something Mm -hmm. like that. So when we went to city council, we didn't ask for more money. We just had worked together and proved that what was happening in internal affairs was not effective. Mm -hmm. That community was not being put first. Officers were being upheld. I had a case in, in Berkeley where I won a lawsuit and then the same situation happened in Oakland, 15 minutes away, and they upheld it for the officers. Mm. We decided that, no, that's not good enough. Yep. So when we went to city council, 
We didn't ask for more money. We wanted their money. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We proved that they were either demonstrating incompetence or really were not for the people. Yeah. And so we used those processes. It took some time. It took some pressure. But that's exactly what happened. And so all all the work that's happening now stemmed from that linchpin of getting that community oversight board funded first. Uh, so that's how you kind of build upon, you pass that knowledge down. You got to bring up the next generation to keep up the good fight. I love that. And I, I think that's a, a good note to wrap on. I, I don't want to hold you too long, but I love, I love, uh, I, and I'll say this and, and, and I'll, I'll let you go, but I love how you said, like, I'm a builder. And like, that's a part of innately of your, your character, who you are, um, of your being. And so like, when we, th- when we even think about like, um, transforming systems are these systems that are in place. How can we, uh, what are ways that we can build, you know? And I love how you took that money and just like built it and invested it into somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? And we, and for those who want to bid all smart allocate or like clip this, we talk about take, it was reallocated into another area. If we want to be very specific, whatever. But um, I, I love that, that, that analogy, that even that model that we can look at of like, yo, like, let's see of what ways that we could reallocate, reinvest this money um, into, into um, ways that's building all of us up. Um, so that's, that's fantastic. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was truly a, a, a blessing. I'm, I've, yeah, I'm just like blown away by your book. Um, and I want to tell all my listeners, y'all go cop his book. It's Community Conscious Policing, A Guide for People's Justice and Law Enforcement Solutions. And Brandon, where can um, The Real Fam uh, find you or get connected with you and your organization? Um, T4TWorks.com is where you can find the book, T4TWorks.com. If you'd like a signed copy or you want to get some copies in bulk at a wholesale discount, uh, you can reach us at T4TSavesLives.com, T4TSavesLives.com. Support your local melanated-owned bookstores. Love it. uh, And you can find it just about anywhere. Fantastic. All right, thanks, y'all, for listening. This podcast was produced by myself, Jonathan Dumas, additional production help by the incomparable Lindsay Dumas, with music by the oh-so-talented Mr. Tony Deras. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Till next time, y'all. Peace.